Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of our podcast on the ACA Applicable Large Employer Reporting and other ACA updates. I'm Dorothy Koshu, host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable, and I have with me again today Marilyn Monahan from Monahan Law Office. Thanks again, Marilyn, for being here. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy that, as, as we said last week, I'm, I'm really happy that you're doing this so that I don't have to talk about it because everybody wants to hear about the reporting right, right around reporting time. And, you know, that's as we talked about last week, that's one of my least favorite things to talk about. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it is an important employer obligation, particularly with the uh, removal of the good faith penalty relief that we talked about last time. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for reminding us about that. So let's jump right back into it. Last week, we talked about who needs to file some background on the ACA and reporting requirements, the IRS safe harbors, and some new developments. Now let's get into the activities of the IRS and the state and federal exchanges. Lately, we've been dealing with a lot more IRS letters to our clients uh, on the potential penalties, those notorious 226J letters. What are you seeing with this latest round of IRS activity? I've been seeing a lot of 226J letters out there. Uh, The IRS seems to be quite busy with its enforcement um, in this particular area. It seemed to be a little bit of a lull in enforcement in this area throughout the pandemic, but now it seems to be accelerating. I don't have actual statistics on that. I'm just basing it on the number of letters my clients have been receiving and the questions that I've been getting. Um, I will also mention that the IRS has been uh, pricklier about giving extensions of time. And so if you do get a 226J letter, it's important to jump on it and uh, get together your response to it as soon as possible. They may grant you an extension. Um, they, I haven't heard of them actually refusing an extension, but they have been um, a little stickier about it of late. Yeah, and as you know, you've worked on a couple of these with our clients, and uh, you know, before they had one, and then in the in the past, all years combined, and then this year, they had one, two, three, right after each other. They just kept getting more and more, and because uh, they have multiple companies and that sort of thing, um, so I have seen this firsthand as well and you're right they are more aggressive on this so for those of you that think you can just you know uh, not do a good job on these things they are auditing they are looking at these things and they are starting to put out those proposed penalties again you're probably going to see a lot more activity on this and you're right I think during COVID the you know they were short staffed they didn't have people around they knew that the employers were uh, under stress a lot of the uh, companies were shut down because of COVID and all that sort of thing so I'm you know my personal opinion is they probably kind of laid off that a little bit uh but now that everyone you know with the vaccines and everything else people are you know productions moving again people are coming back to work or back at work uh the irs is more active again because their employees are are working again more uh coming back into the office or going from home working from home whatever they have to do so uh you know if you if you thought because during covid you know okay, they've stopped doing this. Um, that's not the truth at all. Um, as Marilyn said, they're really, really aggressive right now. And uh, as far as the penalty amounts and so forth, are, are they relatively high amounts? Are they low amounts? What are you seeing most of the time on these things? 
The penalties are based on a predetermined amount. They adjust each year based on inflation. Interestingly, they have not yet formally announced what the A and B penalty will be for 2022, although a lot of people out there have made calculations. We estimate they will be 2,750 for the A penalty and 4,120 for the B penalty. If you get hit with either A or B penalty, the IRS doesn't have a lot of discretion in uh, calculating the penalty. It's a strict calculation based on these predetermined sums. But as far as responding, you mentioned before that they have to respond quickly. These employers, they don't want to be sitting on these letters for two and a half, three weeks and then you know, calling me, calling you uh, and saying, help, help, help when they've been sitting on it. So uh, what would you say to employers about, you know, making sure that it's a priority that, you know, the HR department, whoever's receiving these accounting department, payroll department, whoever these letters are going to, that they open those pieces of mail immediately and look and see what they are and start working on them right away? Because sometimes they take time to get uh, the information from the vendors and so forth. What would what would your response to be? What would your advice be to those individuals receiving those letters? Exactly what you just implied, and that is, um, don't delay. Don't assume that you've got plenty of time to respond. They usually give you about thirty days from the date of the letter. One problem we sometimes see is when the letters come from the IRS, they're not addressed to any particular individual, so they just go to uh, Alpha Corporation or Beta Corporation, and they could end up on anyone's desk. So one thing I would suggest is uh, instruct your staff if a letter shows up on your desk. Uh, with the IRS uh, logo on it to make sure you filter that down to the CFO or the head of HR or someone who has the authority to start working on it and gathering the information that you need to respond. Um, the other item is uh, I would again echo what you just implied and that is um, you're probably going to have to work with a team of people in order to gather the information to draft your response that's often the case and it may be that some of the information you need is held by vendors is held by a former broker is held by um, some third party um, and you can't get the information um, instantaneously it might take a little bit of time so for example if you had an outside vendor prepare your 1094 or your 1095 forms, it might take a little bit of time to submit a request to get those old forms and uh, put them together so that you can then study them and formulate a response to the IRS explaining um, why you answered certain questions uh, in the forms the way you did. Um, so you need to you need to jump on it. You need to get moving on it. Yeah, I think it's really important that people understand that. You mentioned a couple of things, but it might be sitting on someone's desk and they don't even know what it is. I think one of the important things that employers should think about is training their mailroom personnel so that they know whenever anything comes from someone like the IRS or, you know, the state exchanges, um, you know, think people like that, entities like that, the Franchise Tax Board, that they have a process in place uh, that it needs to go to finance department uh, or something like that, whatever their process is, wherever the department is that they normally handle that. I think that's something that the employers might want to think about because these letters are coming much more frequently and uh, and, and and also to a lot more, I think, employers than, than we've had in the past. So, and I think they also need to think about things like mail delays because, you know, sometimes they can be held up in the mail for three to five days or two weeks even. We've seen letters coming in. So, uh, again, I just think that people need to understand by the time they receive those letters, they could be a couple of weeks old already and you only have 30 days. So that you know cuts down your time period quite significantly. Would you agree? 
Absolutely. Um, some letters have been uh, delivered very, very rapidly, but others have been delayed in the mail, especially with the holiday mail and so forth. Um, so you just never know. So absolutely, it's very important to have processes in place to make certain that when uh, important mail such as this comes in the door, that it is delivered to the right person who has the authority and the ability to get to work on it and get a response out. So I know, Marilyn, you actually had uh, uh, an instance recently, very recently on a, on a recent business trip that something happened, that something came in while you were out at, a, at an engagement or something like that. I know you didn't tell me any details, but you did mention uh, receiving, you know, you, you couldn't talk to me at that moment because uh, something came in from a client. Uh, would you care to share that type of example with us? Well, in this case, the client actually did all the right things. The client called for an extension in a timely manner, but for whatever reason, the IRS wouldn't confirm the extension over the phone on that particular instance and instead said that they will send you a letter, keep your eye out for a letter. In the meantime, we were sitting around preparing our response, but thinking, oh, the extension will come through. We'll have a couple of extra weeks. The extension didn't come through. So we, I was traveling, but nonetheless, Fortunately, the client had gotten the documentation together. We put together a draft letter for the IRS yesterday. It was almost ready to go um, when the extension came through and it didn't come through until the day the letter was due to the IRS. That, that gave us a little bit more breathing room in the end, but it just shows you, um, you can't necessarily uh, assume that you're going to get that extension even if they've implied that you probably will. Fortunately, though, the client and I were able to work together very smoothly in advance to make sure that all the, we had the data necessary. We could have gotten the response out if we wanted to, but this just gives us another weekend to look it over, make sure that we're really comfortable with it, um, and send it out um, in uh, at the beginning of next week. I thank you for I like I like hearing stories like that because it makes me feel better knowing that uh, you know we're not the only ones that that are you know as, as a broker and consultant uh, that we're not the only ones that have those situations occur so thank you for sharing that um, I also wanted to just mention that sometimes the mistakes sometimes they're actually mistakes made by vendors and so forth it might be internal it might be your external vendor uh, what we've seen from time to time and I know that you've been involved in this is that sometimes you know when you get these letters those those are for years that took place you know two three four years ago that you're getting these letters on in the meantime I think employers need to be a little bit more proactive because when they receive this letter and they know that you know they've been doing this every year maybe they don't think about it because they're just in panic mode about getting the response out but you have to think about things like you know what the same exact thing happened the two years after this so what do we do about those situations what what would you suggest to employers when they once they go through this and they realize you know this is two or three years ago that we're talking about now that we're that we're responding what should we do can they file uh, new forms before they get a letter uh, or something like that another 226 J letter that says because of prior uh, because of prior history and, and our you know with you dealing with us on this on a prior year uh, we've discovered that we made a mistake or our vendor made a mistake and we would like to refile this. Can they do that? What would you recommend in a circumstance like that? Well, actually, I would say you flagged two different issues there. And one is that there is a delay between the time you file the forms and the IRS sends you the 226J letter. So right now I'm working on 2019 1094 and 1095 forms. That's what the, uh, the IRS letter 
letters are addressing now, the 2019 forms. And it's not unusual at all for between 2019 and today for the employer to have changed brokers, they've changed HR staff, they've changed payroll vendors. And now they have to go back and recreate what happened to figure out why they completed the form in the way they did to respond to the IRS's proposed penalty. So sometimes it means going back to a payroll vendor you're no longer working with and asking them to pull up the old 1094s or 1095s. A lot of times I'll say, what was your contribution schedule back then? We don't remember. We didn't keep that record. Or what was the affordability safe harbor you uh, relied upon? No one wrote that down. We relied on our old broker to keep track of that. And so then I have to sort of recreate it, looking at how they filled out the forms and so forth. So my first point would be, even though you've hired outside vendors and they may be doing a great job for you, personnel can change, situations can change. I think it's important for employers to keep copies of their own records. Don't strictly rely on your broker, your payroll provider, your TPA to maintain these records. I think you should have duplicates. It is your statutory obligation and ultimately it is your responsibility. And it will just make things faster and smoother if uh, the records are maintained in more than one location when um, uh, uh, audit request or a 226J letter comes on down the road a couple of years later on. Your second question, Dorothy, was about um, can you be proactive? And yes, you can. And it's not at all uncommon. And we're seeing this where an employer will get a 226J letter for 2018 or 2019. And in the conversation, we'll say, hey, I bet we repeated the same mistake the next year because we didn't understand. You can be proactive and while you're working with your counsel or whomever you're having help you prepare that response to the 226J letter for 2018 or 2019, pull up your 2020 form. See if you made the same mistake there. If you did, you can file a corrected form. Um, and if you're now working on your 2021 forms, make certain that the same mistake isn't repeated in those forms because there's not gonna be any good faith penalty relief for that 2021 form. Well, thank you for talking about that because, as as you know, we work with you uh, jointly on all of these responses with uh, with our clients and with the IRS. Because uh, although I'm you know fully equipped to to handle these things, of course, uh, personally, I just know that our clients feel comfortable knowing that not only we assisted them as their broker, but that we brought in an attorney that's qualified. And and as soon as you bring in an attorney, there's just a, so much more of a comfort level uh, that the employers have. Um, and, uh, and 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 I just I just feel better knowing that you know you've looked over everything and uh, any responses that we may have come up with any research that we might have done that you're you know checking everything that we did as well and and making sure that those letters are going out to uh, to uh, you know make sure that everything's handled properly. But as far as the future forms are concerned, I think it's really important because a lot of the times the mistakes that are happening are not necessarily employer mistakes, but sometimes very often I've noticed is they are the actual vendor that's doing the reporting that's actually tracking uh, it might be a, a software vendor it might be a payroll company uh, they might have system issues uh, they may have input something incorrectly so those can be easily corrected uh, for future years like you said you're right now working on we're right now working on uh, as well with you uh, 2019 forms yes you've already done your 2020 so just get those refiled uh, sooner rather than later and make sure that as you said that the 2021 forms that go out of course are are done. And also turnover and staff and so forth, as you mentioned, are, are important as well. 
Well, can I add that even if it's a vendor mistake, ultimately the employer is responsible for it. It's the employer that signs the form that goes to the IRS. And so you will be held responsible for the vendor's mistake. Um, so it's important for employers to understand what it is they're saying when they sign these forms, to understand when the vendor has checked the box no in, rather than yes, what they're saying to the IRS by checking the box no rather than yes or um, things of that nature. So the employer needs to understand what the obligation is, what they're reporting to the IRS, and needs to ask hard questions of the vendor if they're not comfortable with the form that they're signing. And as I said uh, a couple of times now, there's no more good faith penalty release starting in 2021. So the pressure is on employers to make certain that they and their vendors do the best job possible. Yeah, thank you. Well, let's move on to the state marketplace appeals. What's the latest happening there? You know, I've been hearing very little about these state marketplace appeal letters. I don't know if there's been sort of a lull in sending them out during the pandemic or if employers are just comfortable um, responding to them and addressing them on their own um, or they just um, it's it's at the bottom of the priority list. If you do get a letter, uh, you they usually come out in the fall from Covered California or your state marketplace telling you that one or more of your employees has gotten a premium tax credit and you don't think that they should be entitled to a premium tax credit because you've offered them MEC, minimum value, affordable coverage, you do have the right to appeal those letters. Um, the grounds for appeal are fairly limited, but there are grounds for appeal if you don't believe that they're entitled to the premium tax credit. Um, I recommend to employers that they do appeal if they think they have grounds for it um, because it will um, sort of clean up the situation if you will if someone wasn't entitled to a premium tax credit um, they will lose that premium tax credit if your appeal is granted but it also i believe will make it less likely that you will get a 226j letter down the line because the records will have been cleaned up as it were um, indicating that uh, the named employee didn't get a premium tax credit and it's getting the premium tax credit that kicks off the 226J letters and the 4980H A and B penalties. Right, right. Well, the affordability percentage is calculated each year, as you mentioned before. Uh, what is it for 2022 and is that up or down from 2020 and 2021? The affordability percentage for 2022 is 9.61. So it's a little uh, lower than it was uh, for 2021, which was 9.83%. It's an important number. It's the number you use to calculate an affordable contribution uh, on the part of your employee for self-only coverage to their lowest cost plan. It's the calculation that, uh, excuse me, it's the number that you use when you're um, applying to three affordability safe harbors. So every year prior to open enrollment, when you're working out your contribution rates for employees, this is the number you wanna sit down with along with your chosen affordability safe harbor to make sure that the amount that you're asking employees to contribute doesn't exceed these percentages using the safe harbor formulas, um, or you are potentially going to be subject to a 49808B penalty. Okay, thank you. Uh, what about the section 4980HA penalty? Has that gone up and what was it and what will it be going forward into the next year? As I mentioned earlier, 
interestingly, they have not yet formally announced the A and B penalty for 2022. They're a little late on this, and I'm not certain why. It's a mathematical calculation. Um, but as a result, a lot of people out there um, with uh, actuaries on staff have been calculating um, what they believe the penalties will be. So the best estimate seems to be that the A penalty will be $2,750 for 2022. That's up $50 from 2021. Similarly, the estimate seems to be that the B penalty will be $4,120 up from $4,060 in 2021. Okay, thank you. And you knew I was going to ask about the B next, so thank you for that. <laughs> I'm not going to ask. I couldn't resist. Yeah, yeah I, I, I can't ask one without the other. So what about the California filings for those people that are in California with the Franchise Tax Board? What are the failure to file penalties uh, on the state side? The failure to file penalties, uh, so if the employer is obligated to file the 1095C forms with the, ten, with the uh, Franchise Tax Board and fails to do so, the penalty is $50 per form. Can I also add, uh, we talked about the A and B penalty and the affordability percentage. Don't forget that the minimum wage go has been going up every year in California. For 2022, for employers with 26 or more employees, it's $15. And in some municipalities, it might be higher than that. I mentioned that because if you're relying on the rate of pay safe harbor, you're going to need to factor that in when you run your calculations. Well, as usual, you're ahead of me because that was going to be my next question was going to be a about the minimum wage, <laughs> but okay, moving on. Uh, yes, we're definitely usually on, we're definitely usually on the same page on these things. We've done this before. Yes, we have. <laughs> so, how about the federal poverty level for those that use that method? Has that been determined yet for 2022? To my knowledge, they have not yet announced that, and that's not unusual. It usually comes out in late January. So the federal poverty level for 2022 usually doesn't come out until late January uh, 2022. So in the meantime, keep in mind that if you are relying on the federal poverty line safe harbor, you can rely on the federal poverty level that was in effect six months prior to the start of your plan year. So if you have, say, a February 1 calendar year plan, a February 1 start date, you can still use the 2021 numbers in running uh, your affordability calculation. Okay, thank you. And let's talk about the forms themselves. We talked about this in part one, but uh, for those that may have missed part one uh, or, or had, you know, stepped out of the room while they were listening or something or just kind of went over their head and forgot about it, let's come back to this. There were some changes, of course, the 2020 and 2021 1095C forms. What are those changes? The biggest change for all employers um, aren't really that significant. Uh, one is that they now require you to put the plan year start date on the form. There's a, a line for it. In prior years, it was optional, but for 2020 and 2021, it's mandatory. So if you have a calendar year plan, you would put 01 for January. If your plan starts June 1, you would put 06 for June. Uh, the second change that it will affect all employers is really just in the structure of the form. If you are an employer with a self-funded plan, you have to complete part three of the 1095C. Part three used to start on page one of the form. It's now been moved to page three of the form. It's all the same. It's still there. It's just on a different page. There are a few other changes you will notice on the 1095C form, but they only apply to those employers who offer individual coverage 
health reimbursement arrangements or ICHRAs. And I come across very few employers that actually have ICHRAs. If you do have an ICHRA, then there's a line to put in the employee's uh, birth date. There's a line to put in the zip code and there are some new series one indicator codes. If you don't offer an ICHRA, you can ignore the new uh, additional indicator codes and you can ignore the birthday information as well as the zip code information. Okay, thank you. And uh, I know there are some states, as you mentioned in part one, uh, besides California that have individual mandates, but uh, because we're in California, we'll talk about that. And as Marilyn said in part at, uh, in part one, uh, you do really need to uh, do some research about what you need to do in each of those other states. But what about the California Minimum Essential Coverage Individual Mandate, SB 78, for those people that maybe are new to the responsibility uh, of having to do this filing and so forth? Or as a simple reminder to others, what does California require in general? SB 78 was passed by the California legislature a few years ago. It is an individual coverage mandate. It requires Californians to have health coverage and to report to the Franchise Tax Board that they have health coverage when they file their Form 540. If you don't have health coverage and it, you, you don't qualify for an exemption, then you have to pay a penalty to the Franchise Tax Board. This mandate went into effect January 1, 2021. Now, in order to track who doesn't who doesn't have coverage, the Franchise Tax Board is requiring employers and insurance companies to file their 1095B and their 1095C forms with the Franchise Tax Board. If you are an employer with a fully insured plan and your carrier files the 1095B forms with the Franchise Tax Board, you don't have any further filing requirements. But if your carrier doesn't do that, or you're a self-funded employer, so there's no carrier to file the 1095B forms, that means that you have to file the 1095C forms with the Franchise Tax Board. And there's um, an electronic mechanism set up. There's a system set up through which you can register um, and um, set up your systems in order to file those documents. Importantly, you don't have to create any new documents to satisfy the Franchise Tax Board filing requirement. You can use your 1095C forms, but the important thing to remember is you must actually file them with the Franchise Tax Board. And the deadline for doing so is March 31. They also require you to furnish the 1095C forms to your employees, just as the federal government does. The deadline for state purposes is January 31, 2022. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. And you know the last question I was going to ask you is going to be the form deadline, so I'm glad that you uh, already covered that for us, as usual. Uh, we, we generally uh, know what's, what's next on these types of questions. Uh, Marilyn, as always, you've given us a ton of great information. And as I briefly mentioned earlier, we're going to be having a webinar on this topic in a lot more detail, and you've been kind enough to be my guest presenter for our February webinar, which is going to take place on February 8th from 10 till 12 noon Pacific time. Thank you very much for doing that. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, and if anyone wants to know more about this uh, webinar, wants to register for it, it's two hours as I mentioned, 
And Marilyn is going to be digging into all the details. Of course, it's a webinar, so you'll have slides in front of you. She'll actually show you the forms, walk you through every uh, all the changes and so forth, where they're located. And, and it's nice to have visuals when you're talking about these kind of details. You can go to our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com and look on the right column. There are three columns on the homepage. Go to the right column and scroll down. You'll see on top our January 26th uh, Lunch and Learn webinar. Probably by the time these uh, podcasts hit, that will already be over, uh, which was, by the way, an awesome detailed report on clarifying the confusion on federal and state leave laws with Kathy Ruffino from Train Me Today, as well as human resources updates for 2022, followed by Marilyn and myself. We tackled self-auditing on your health and welfare plan, updated for 2022. So that was a great program. Thank you, Marilyn, for assisting with that as well. Uh, Happy to do so. Yes. Anyways, back to the uh, ACA reporting webinar on February 8th. Just scroll down under that Lunch and Learn from January, and you will find the information online to register on the two-hour program on ACA reporting. So please feel free to do that if you want some more information. And Marilyn, in case people can't make the webinar on February 8th or have questions in the meantime or need some assistance, how can they reach you? Um, you can reach me at uh, 310-989-0993 or my email address is marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. Easy enough. Thank you very much. And thank you, Marilyn, for all of your time today and last week. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, as I've told you on numerous occasions before, you're one of our highest rated uh, guests on our podcast. So we always welcome you and always want to have you on. And, and uh, we're just, I, I myself personally, I'm just always so excited to have you. So thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. It's a lot of fun working with you, Dorothy, and um, I appreciate your great audiences. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so we will be seeing you on February 8th for this detailed webinar. And uh, please, again, go ahead and register that if you want to uh, at advancedbenefitconsulting.com. So to everybody out there, please stay safe, stay diligent, stay healthy, because this COVID thing isn't quite over yet. And we're going to be back next week for another podcast for the Benefits Executive Roundtable. So come back and listen again. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.